Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This episode of Hey Amarillo is supported by SKP Creative. We live in an online world, and online reviews have the ability to make or break your business. Reviews, powered by SKP Creative, is the fastest and easiest way to get great reviews from your loyal customers on the platforms of your choice. There's no complicated setup. There's no expensive training. It's just a simple, intuitive interface created with small business owners in mind. Visit reviews.skpcreative.com to start generating more reviews for your business today. That's reviews.skpcreative.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Champion Barbecue Supply, online at championbbqsupply.com, First Bank Southwest, online at fbsw.com, and to Rush Eye Associates, online at rushlasik.com. You can read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm's new September-October issue at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Leslie Massey. Leslie is a farmer's insurance agent here in Amarillo. She has a background in advertising. She owns an event venue with her husband, and she's one of those people who seems to be involved in a little bit of everything here in the city. And I'm always interested in career stories, like how does someone end up with a successful insurance business? So Leslie sheds a lot of light on that question. Spoiler alert, it involves a lot of hustle, a little luck, and living in a place like Amarillo where word of mouth and social connections carry a lot of value. We also talk about something that might come as a surprise even to people who already know Leslie. She lives in a pretty legendary Amarillo home. So here's Leslie Massey. Leslie Massey, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks, Jason. Glad to be here. Well, it's my honor to have you. Uh, We've known each other for a while, but I want to start with you the same way I start with all my guests and just ask you how you ended up in this area. So what brought you to Amarillo in the first place? Um, Well, the short answer is that I grew up in Canyon, went to WT, and then found a job up in Amarillo. But my family really has an interesting story about how they ended up in the panhandle. Uh, My dad's dad was born in 1895. Okay. And he came to Amarillo on a ship. Uh, The story is he was stowaway. Okay. um, Now, no ships come to Amarillo. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Maybe he didn't. Trying to figure out how that part happened. Yes. Yes. Good point. Um, He actually, they docked in New York. Okay. And he had a sister that was living in Umbarger. And so he made his way from New York to Umbarger, big city Umbarger, Texas. Um, Where was he before he stowed away on the ship? He was living in Switzerland, and okay. I don't know the the exact name of the town. Um, we've got some really good historians in the family that have all of that detailed, but okay. I, I don't remember the exact name. But Umbarger had a German population, right. and so I guess there was some language shared. And Yeah, absolutely. Both sides of my family are, are big German Catholic families. Both grandparents had 12 kids, so wow. we've got a ton, a ton of relatives and a ton of relatives in the area. So that's kind of how my dad's dad got here. Um, and and that was just like 1895. I mean, Amarillo started in 1889 or so, I think was incorporated. Right. So that I was 
Yeah. I don't know the history of Umbarger as well. But. Right. So he um, actually came to Umbarger in 1914. Okay. So yeah, it, everything was, was fairly new, right? And then my mom's dad, they lived in Kansas and they came here on a covered wagon. Okay. From Kansas um, and ended up in Amarillo. And then he married my grandmother in the early 1900s and they moved to Umberger as okay. well. So both, you know, sides of my family are, are originally kind of from Umberger in that area. That's, uh, that's a pretty deep local history. That's about <laughs> as deep as it can be yes. you know, since we Amarillo and the Panhandle doesn't have, at least the, the settled history is, is not quite that deep. So right. that's interesting to know. You know, growing up in Canyon, did did you have an idea about like what you wanted to do with your life or career or anything like that? I mean, you know, just like most Canyon kids, I always thought about leaving, mm-hmm. right? I, I went to Canyon High School and I always, I wanted to go to, to college at UT mm-hmm. and I, I wanted to live in Austin. Um, I didn't have the grades for that, nor the money to do that. So Both thankfully- Both of those are important <laughs> parts of that process. So thankfully stayed in Amarillo. Um, I have an older brother. I'm I'm a baby of, of four kids that I've always kind of watched my brother in his career and- um, he started in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, he, I think he had one job at corporate systems or something before that, um, but kind of watched his career path and, and always envisioned something similar, mm-hmm. um, for me. And so I went to WT, got a marketing degree. I was working at the time at the Canyon Country Club, the little nine hole golf course yeah. outside of, of Canyon. And I needed a job, right? I graduated and the sales manager for the Amarillo Globe News, the retail sales manager was actually a member okay. out there. Okay. And so he knew that they were hiring for an internet salesperson at the Globe News. And so I applied and ended up getting the job. And that was September of 2001. So it was right after 9-11, right after, you know, all of that kind of crazy time. That's an interesting time to be in the newspaper business, much less advertising world of the newspaper business. Right, exactly. And the online side of the house too. It was, it was really an exciting, I was there, gosh, eight years, I think I was there at the paper and, and to see the transition is pretty remarkable. So with online advertising in the newspaper business, I mean, that was a period of transition. It had it had been a thing, but like 2001, like it was becoming a bigger deal and newspapers were starting to see how valuable it could be and businesses were starting to ask about it, I presume. like I, I wonder what, if you can talk me through like what that period was like, because um, it was a period of 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 new technology. And I imagine you were learning the same time businesses were learning and the newspaper was figuring out how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was exciting. And the exciting parts about the online advertising was that it was trackable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you knew how many times the, the ad was loaded and, and we could tell you audience um, who was looking, how many people were looking, times of day they were looking. Those statistics hadn't really been available before. Okay. You know, so... Uh, there was definitely a learning curve, both with our advertisers and us as part of the industry. So it was it was really, really exciting. When I started early on, they didn't really see where this was going. There was still mm-hmm. some hesitation, right? You want me to pay $50 a month for what? You know, how is this going to work? And is my ad animated? And 
what happens if somebody clicks on it? And all of those things are kind of funny to think about now. Um, But then as the readership of the paper grew, because it did, Mm -hmm. I mean, all of a sudden there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of people reading the paper online um, before there was registration or, or any of that. I mean, we had this captive audience that we could serve ads to. And it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And that was before newspapers had paywalls for articles or anything like that. And so everybody (laughs) could access the paper. Yes. Um, And so it was, it was kind of the wild west, you know, competing for, for clicks and eyeballs and and all that kind of stuff. I imagine it was, it was an exciting time to be doing like sales work. Yeah, it was, it was. And we partnered up with um, all of the regular retail and classified you know, ad reps Mm -hmm. and could bundle both, you know, print and online uh, bundles together. And and it was a lot of fun. Now, that being, you know, one of your first jobs out of college, did you feel pretty equipped for sales? Did you feel like that was something that was a stretch for you or did it fit your personality? Uh, I think it fit my personality. You know, uh, we did sales training here and there uh, with the paper, but I think it's all about building a relationship. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and getting to know your customers and, and understanding what their businesses needed and the, the things that they wanted to promote, you know, advertising wise, but it was a lot of fun. It was scary. Trust mm-hmm. me. I mean, there, you know, it was terrified at first, just like anything when you're new, but again, watching my older brother kind of go through his sales career, I knew that, there's definitely a path forward in sales. I didn't imagine that I would stay at the paper. Uh, you know, I, I always wanted to kind of follow in his footsteps and go into the pharmaceutical industry and, and all of that as well. So um, ultimately, I did end up getting a pharmaceutical job and okay. left the paper in 2008. Okay. And that was pretty short-lived. Um, I thought, you That know, was right about the time of the economic... <laughs> downturn. That's a a lot of jobs were kind of squishy at that point. Yes, exactly. And, and he was like, Leslie, don't do it. I don't, I don't know that this is the path you want to go on. It's really kind of unstable. And, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm going to do this. And ended up getting hired on with Pfizer and they had nine reps in town and I got hired in May of 08. And then they had their giant round of layoffs in January of 09. And um, out of out of nine reps here in town, all but two got let go. And I happened to be one of those reps. So it was a good seven month career with Pfizer. (laughs) It did. I got an awesome severance. Um, And I I did. No, I I think God has a, a plan that's better than your own. Right. And had I not gotten the job and gotten laid off, I never would have had the resources to take the leap of faith into Hmm. the insurance industry. Okay. Tell me how the insurance thing happened. Yeah. Had you had exposure to it? No. Before then? (laughs) Other than like probably having insurance on your own home and automobile. Yeah, exactly. So um, again, my brother was like, don't, you know, pharmaceuticals, it's volatile. He had a friend and a neighbor that was a state farm agent in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And he was like, if I could do it all again, I would go the insurance route. And I was like, really? Okay. You know, so uh, when I did get laid off, I put my resume everywhere like you did. And the district office called from farmers and said, hey, we want to talk to you. And I thought, well, somebody wants to talk to me. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, maybe this is good interviewing practice, maybe 
you know, maybe there's something here. Because I didn't. We didn't have anybody in the family that was in insurance. Didn't really understand what this career really looks like. Okay. When you when you're in it. So I went and met. His name was Jeff Ivy. He was the the district manager at the time, and and it's they show you this roadmap to success, and it's this laminated piece mm-hmm. that shows you, you know, your income potential and kind of the career of an agent. And I thought this guy is full of it, <laughs> you know. And so anyway, that we we kept the conversation going. And one thing I liked about it is is at that particular time. There was an entry point into the insurance agency ownership with farmers where you could start from scratch, right? You didn't have to go take a big loan. Okay. You um, could, you had to get licensed. There were some requirements that you had to make uh, early on, but then you could office out of the district office for a period of time until you were ready to open up your own office. And so after a lot of thought and consideration and conversations with my husband, uh, that's, that's what we decided you know, to do. And it was once we said, yes, we're doing it, there wasn't a plan B. Okay. Right. So, and I, my, my husband has always been self-employed. And so I was the one that had the insurance benefits, right? The retirement, the stability, the the steady paycheck. And so really jumping uh, into the insurance industry was like me jumping off a cliff with our family. Wow. Right. And so thankfully I flew. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, tell me what those early years are like, because I I don't have a real sense. You know, everybody knows of of the big insurance companies, mm-hmm. State Farm and Allstate and Farmers. I don't have a real sense when you're a new agent and you're starting out, like, how do you get your customers? Are a lot of them referred to you from that district office or are you just going out and doing sales? Yeah. I mean, you would get some, like the the district would run ads and we would get some call-ins if we happened to be at the office at that time. But you have to go out and kill it and Mm -hmm. bring it home. I mean, you are are out beating the bushes. And so I love to think about my early days because um, my husband had two kids when we married. Um, They were tiny when we married, but they were seven or eight about my son's mm-hmm. age now um, when I started in the insurance industry and so <laughs> we would go fly our apartment complexes right like we got so good at doing that you know the colonies apartment complex it's right there on hillside by mm-hmm. the town club we could do that the three of us in 45 minutes there's like 320 doors yeah, on that just little we, door hangers and yeah stuff, we would go in and promote renter's insurance and auto insurance and I would I would stand out and I would buy donuts, right? And I would stand outside at the apartment complex in the parking lot before people were going to work in school and I would pass out donuts. And I did everything I could to Hmm. just meet people, right? I just needed an opportunity to meet new people. And I knew just instinctually that doesn't happen when you're sitting, sitting behind a desk. Yeah. Right. So we did a lot of things like that. I would take ice cream to the swimming pool and you'd be like, hey, I promise I'm not creepy. I just I'm new. I just opened up an insurance agency. I'm just trying to make new friends. Is is going the renter's insurance route? Is that like um, a strategy that a lot of agents will use? Because that's (laughs) often the first insurance that people get like if yeah. you know if a, a college student is moving out on their own they move into an apartment mm-hmm. they've got to get insurance 
And like, they're going to get that sometimes before, you know, they, their mom and dad may still be paying their car insurance, right. but they need renter's insurance. Yes. And I, <laughs> from a financial point of view, that probably wasn't my smartest avenue because you really don't make a yeah. lot of money off renter's insurance. But again, it was, it was activity that was giving me confidence to get out and talk to people. Okay. Right. So some of the other things I did, which, which ended up being probably a better clientele. I okay. mean, and don't get me wrong. I, I still have some of those early people well, that were eventually they graduate they, to a home. Right. Insurance. And they, they buy homes and they have cars and they need life insurance. Yeah. And so they're, you know, Hey, I, I'm happy to help anybody that, that needs the help. But I would also take cookies or whatever to the fire station. Right. Cause farmers gives a certain affinity discounts and firemen okay. and police officers are, or some of those things. And I was, you know, this was 13 years ago. So I was a lot younger and a lot cuter and a lot skinnier. And so I would knock on the door and say, Hey, I'm new. I'm with farmers and you get a discount. And so some of my very first households that I still have to this day are firemen. Okay. And I love that. And my father-in-law was a fireman. And so there was a little bit of a connection there. I could say, Hey, you know, do you know my father-in-law? He just retired and, and those things. And so there was a lot of beating the bushes, right? A lot of, a lot of the things I learned from working at the Globe News, you know, we were real active in the Realtors Association and the Apartment Association and the Builders Association. So I joined those associations even before I was a full-time agent because I knew that if I would network there and become part of those organizations, that would benefit my business. And it has, you know, so it, it, there was a period of time and then finally out of just consistency and sheer hard work <laughs> and beating the pavement and, and trying to volunteer, I didn't have any money mm-hmm. at all. So I had to volunteer for, for anything and everything they would let me do. I couldn't sponsor a whole lot of golf, right. the golf course. Right. I had to be on the golf committee or I had to, you know, work it to, to be there, but it's paid off. That still builds trust and it, it builds relationships yes. and people you know, recognize your name at some point then. Right. Is, is, I know that you initially went with farmers because you saw that there was an opening and you submitted a resume mm-hmm. and they called you back. Mm-hmm. Is there something though about farmers that in your mind makes it different from the state farms or all states of the world? I mean, I, I imagine most listeners may have an insurance agent, you know, mm-hmm. in one of those camps and and it's because like that's who their mom or dad had. You know, sure. there's there's not a lot of thought given into the choices. And I wonder from your perspective, like, is there a difference between all those big names? That's a really good question. And there's a couple of different answers, right? So there's differences between I mean, there's policy differences mm-hmm. between each of those companies, right? They all kind of write their own propri- proprietary policy forms. And so our policy, our policies are not exactly the same. Um, but there are also differences in the culture, okay. right, for the organization. And one thing that I really, and as, as things have kind of evolved with the insurance industry, I think it, it can be more evident now, but I'm happy to be in the farmer's insurance camp. They really, the leadership from the top down, I mean, I was at the newspaper and and there were, we would go to conferences and there would be people from other newspapers within within our same company, right? But you didn't get a sense of really family 
or that they were open to have a conversation, right? right? And even in the pharmaceutical industry, I was a baby in that industry. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but those people at the top were so intimidating. It's different with farmers, right? Like the, the agents from across the country help each other, right? There's no need to reinvent the wheel. If something's working for an agent in the Dallas area, they'll share it with us. If something's working... You know, in California, we can talk to them about why it's working and see if it would work here. In the leadership, they want our feedback, mm. right? They have to make tough decisions, and we don't always agree on certain things here and there. But it really is a—it's a—it's more of a family culture, okay? Right? And I can't speak to what it's like to be a state farmer and all state agent. Sometimes I'm sure we all feel like the grass would be greener on the right, other side. Right. I think there's a lot of similarities in the insurance industry. It's always a challenge to stay profitable in the state of Texas. But right now, with all of this inflationary mess, right, that, that you and I as consumers are facing, it's trickling down to the insurance companies too. Right, okay. And so on top of all of the conversations we have with our customers at every renewal about, well, there's a lot of claims in the state and, you know, we've got to raise rates. That's how insurance works. <laughs> it's just being compounded now right. with the cost of, of repair, with the cost of construction, the cost of rental cars, the value of cars. Yeah, like the, how much was a used car yeah. worth and how did those skyrocket? And that right. has an impact on what insurance pays if there's an accident. Exactly. And so there's something called the combined ratio, right, that an average consumer probably doesn't know. I've never and, used that phrase, right. so I imagine. <laughs> well, now you're going to use it. All the time. You're going to call your agent and say, hey, what's your combined ratio? Um, so for every dollar in premium the company takes in, how much are we paying out? Okay. And so the combined ratio right now, and, and I meant to research and know that I was going to say the right the right numbers. So these numbers may not be exact, but uh, on the auto side, it's something like, and this is industry-wide, not just farmers, but we're taking in a dollar for every dollar of premium we're taking in, we're paying out like a dollar eight. Okay. And that's okay. not sustainable. And we can't as a business. Sus- no. And so that's where some of these, both their their rate actions, right? Companies are raising rates all across the mm-hmm. board, but there will be non-rate actions too. And I'm not speaking, I'm just speaking in generalities, right? Like companies will will tighten up underwriting mm-hmm. guidelines, right? And some of those things just to get some of this under control. And hopefully it's short-lived, right? This right. is just a cycle. We're all going to make it through. It's going to be okay. But but just they have to take these actions. And it as painful as it is as a consumer, it's really painful as an agent too because we have to look at you and explain this, right? But I think that's why you need a local agent. That's why you need somebody that's going to take the time mm-hmm. to sit down and talk to you about this, right? There's a reason the companies aren't getting rich. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're in they're in they're the money making, making they're making a profit. But we want to offer insurance at a competitive rate, right? But but I'm also thankful and I realize that they ha- the companies have to take these actions so that I have a policy to sell. Yeah. So they don't have to pull out of the state because some of these smaller companies that haven't been charging enough premium that just try to come in and undercut the competitors to gain market share, they're not going to make it. Hmm. 
and you're seeing them leave the marketplace. And so it is, it's, <laughs> there's a lot, this is the most disruption I've seen really? in the 13 years I've been an agent, right? But you, so we are, we are spending our days loving on our customers, right? Making sure they're, they're in the, the right policy that fits their needs because we do have some other options to look at within the farmer's company. And then we're trying to gain, we're trying to love on the customers that are thinking about leaving their carriers, right? right? So it's always busy, but I've never seen it like this. It's crazy. Yeah, I was going to ask how the industry has changed, you know, since you've been involved in it. I I would think that most of the change is driven by the economic realities and and what, you know, everybody's going through just just in general. But are there other ways that that insurance has changed over the past 15 years or so? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think um there's <laughs> There, competition, right? Mm-hmm. There is value to having a local agent in a local office, right? Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of a lot of companies that where you don't ever have to talk to anybody. You can buy insurance online, right? Right. And so that is, I mean, yeah, that which is are, great <laughs> to have it, but then at some point, like you're going to need it, exactly. And then that's where there's a little bit of uncertainty, right? Who are you going to talk to? Right, exactly. And it, it, can you establish a relationship mm-hmm. where you don't have to retell your story every time you get your call transferred? Right, right, right. And the insurance, it's not consumer friendly, right? You get your documents in the mail, and you're like, wow, I don't even know what these numbers mean. What does that mean? But what what do you look at? You typically will look at your price. Right. And then you're like, well, I don't like that price. I want a different price. Mm -hmm. So if you just shop online, I'm sure you can find a different price. But what are you losing in the meantime? You know what I mean? So as, as much as the industry is changing and it's kind of volatile as everything is right now, you know, and my son is eight and I really want to build an insurance empire that he will want to take okay. over, you know, and, and I've had some hesitations in the last few months. I'm like, gosh, where is this going? Is there, is there going to, you know, will I be here mm-hmm. in 20 years to do this? But I think there's always value of doing just like we're doing right now, sitting across the table and having a conversation because it's not self-explanatory. Right. It's not. And you can try to research and you can try to look up policy forms and like, but, but you need somebody to, to help you make the decisions, right? Well, if you do this, let's do the claim scenario. Let's see what that out of pocket looks like, right? If, you know, so I, I think that there will always be value to having some, like a local agent. I want to switch gears a little bit. Okay. And I know that you also have a side gig running an event center. I don't know if that's the right way. You know, the the shop is a place that you rent out for like events and stuff. And and that's that's kind of a a, a little side gig that you have. Tell me about that. Yeah, absolutely. So my husband um, has had a landscaping business forever, Massey's mm-hmm. Landscaping, and they bought some land off of 58th in between Washington and Osage several years ago. I think it was back in maybe 2016. I could have my numbers or my dates wrong a little bit. But anyway, they built a shop out there, right, for to house their equipment and, you know, a, a place for the, the business to start and end uh, each day. And my husband thought, you know, it was a, it was a nice shop, but it was just just a shell. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of a metal, metal yeah, building just a metal, metal, metal building, nothing, nothing really special. And Truett said, um, I think we could rent this out. 
And I was like, are you crazy? I don't want any part of that. Like, I'm busy. I don't have time to mess with that. But he, from the very beginning, he saw a vision, right? And a need for that because there are places in town, right? There are other venues, but there are only so many weekends, Right, <laughs> and and they get booked up, and then we didn't understand at first why people were charging what they were charging, right? So, kind of dabbed in it just in the beginning, and hosted a few parties and and did different things, and then you know with with his business being seasonal, they could work on the shop, and they did most, if not all, of the finish work themselves, him and the in the guys. And have really created a beautiful venue. And we have a back area and they um, went to Dimmit and picked up a grain silo and ended up making a gazebo out of it and did all of that himself. Truett is is never idle. He always yeah. has to have a project. And so this has been a really awesome project. And like I said, he saw the vision from the very beginning and I did not. And now I think he's a genius. Well, and that's really interesting <laughs> because I, I'm thinking of that timeline, 2016. Like there was a period where most people were having weddings, you know, in churches. And then there's kind of a shift and they started mm-hmm. going toward the smaller and outdoor weddings at unique venues. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there were event venues all over Amarillo. Like within two or three years, it just right. seemed like... You know, every right outside the city limits place, you know, was hosting events. Yes. And so you were like, like you beat that rush, I guess, uh, or we're right in the middle of that yeah. rush. And it, it, it just seems like a, a really smart decision to have that in place right when that culture kind of blew up. Yeah. The timing was perfect. Um, our first actual real season would have been whatever that COVID spring was. Was that 19? Okay. 2020? Yeah. Maybe 20. Um, and so that that actually we had we ended up having a couple of events that same year that people were like you know we're we're comfortable doing it and so we we allowed them to do it, but that allowed us more time to kind of finish out the back mm-hmm. space and and put more work into the shop and we're busy I mean we're booked we're we're blessed to be busy is know? that like a every weekend of the summer gets booked up. Yeah. In the springtime. Right. Is that what the the business is like now? It is. And we're even booking into 2023. You know, if graduation weekend usually books up fast and first, you know, and then it's then it's weddings from there and and different things. And so um, it's been a lot of fun. It it has. And all the credit goes goes to my husband and the guys that have done that. And they're the ones that work the events and. I mean, I, I benefit from it. It's yeah. fun, but I don't really do any of the hard work for that. But it's been really neat to watch, and it's beautiful. Like he did, he had a an absolute vision for that, and still has plans to keep improving. Mm-hmm. Um, he loves music, and the sound system out there is phenomenal. You know, there there are different things that make it different. Yeah, and you than, can always find something else. What if we add this? And yes. this is something else that people will like. <laughs> exactly. Is that moving beyond being a seasonal business? Like, is, are there bookings in the fall and winter yeah, and early spring? Yeah, you know what, there are. Or? Yeah, um, we, and I, I haven't looked at the kind of the schedule of events, but we, you know, we've got some weddings into the fall and then we start, you know, holiday parties in November and December. And uh, we're, you know, even some corporate Christmas parties okay. and different types of events. Um, there's a big event out there in September um, Boom Adventures is putting it on out there, and they're having fireworks and a band, and 
I wish I, it's it's in September. I can't remember the exact date, but stay tuned for that. Okay, but it should be it should be fun. I want to ask you one more thing, and I, I don't know how much you want to share about this. And this may not be something that a lot of people know, but I know that you live in a house that used to be owned by and was built by the legendary Amarillo Slim, um, the the famous Amarillo, Texas gambler and adventurer and raconteur, whatever he was. He, <laughs> he has a, a reputation far outside this area. Uh, and I know that you live in his house yes. um, and, and bought that a few years ago. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we, at the time, we we moved into the house in in at the end of July in 2019. And we had talked for a number of years about, we were still in the same house that we had lived in over in Westover Park, you know, and, and my husband grew up with a, a swimming pool. So we had kind of talked about as our businesses grew and um, finding a house with a pool. Mm-hmm. And so we were cooking out one one evening had a couple beers and we're we're looking and, and found this listing for what is now our house but it just seemed so odd it was in the middle of town there was a there's a great giant swimming pool but it looked like there was a tennis court in the mm-hmm. backyard and we're like where in the world is this place and so Paul French from French and Company is a friend of mine so I called Paul and I said hey I don't want to waste your time, but I'm going to ask you to show me this house. We are not going to buy it, but I have to see it. Like, I can't even imagine where this is and what this is in the middle of town. And so... Because it's like the property is is a full city block. I mean, it's almost, big. right? I think it's on six lots. Okay. Um. So it goes, yeah, from Virginia Street all the way back. It butts up against the access road of that... I-27 mm-hmm. in Georgia where that commercial the commercial stuff is okay. right there. So yeah, I think I think technically it's on six lots. And so I grew up in that neighborhood and I knew that house and I knew that property when I was a kid. Right. And, I mean, there used to be horses back there right. that we would look at. So <laughs> Right. So we um so we went and looked at it. Uh, long story short, went and looked at it. it and it had been vacant for a number of years, mm-hmm. right? So um Amarillo Slim's estate had sold it at an auction to this other the people that had purchased it and they were in the, the process of renovating it, right? I don't think it was ever fully lived in after the the people had bought it but so they were renovating they replaced all the floors it was kind of a work in progress but the backyard was totally neglected Hmm. right the swimming pool they had a a pool guy coming it was in great shape but the backyard hadn't been watered and i don't know how long right all the grass was dead so my husband being the landscaping guy looked at that and said i can fix that yeah right he didn't see it as maybe the burden or the expense that that some other people did. He saw it as a challenge. He did. He saw it as a challenge. It was like, we can do this. We could do this. So we fell in love with the backyard, and it came with the dumb big house. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what happened, right? So It, it is a, a weird <laughs> big house. Right. So we are, we are eating the elephant, right? One bite at a time, making it our own, and, and having a lot of fun in the process. But it is a ton of work. I do. I listen to this podcast every Saturday when I mow because I get okay. I have a really nice riding lawnmower and and I you're one of the two or three podcasts I get to listen to when I'm doing yard work. Well, thank you for that. There. Um, <laughs> I, I don't want I don't want you to spill any secrets about your house that you don't want to, but I think a lot of people who knew you know the stories about Emerald Slim would wonder like are there 
are there secret rooms? Is there hidden treasure? You know, is there some sort of weird dungeon? Like, is there anything weird that you've discovered in that house as you um, started renovating it? Oh, my goodness. So he loved guns, and we found some gun cases. Hmm. Um, the The house was built for entertaining, so it is kind of odd. It finally feels like home um, now. So, there, you know, you can tell in the big room, because there's one room with a bar on the end, and I think the square footage of that one room is like 1,100 square feet. Wow. Where you can tell where he had a poker table on the right-hand side and a pool table on the left-hand side. And, and we went back and found, like, the auction pictures when it was auctioned off. And, I mean, it's crazy. Like, they, the, the previous owners really did a lot of work. They, um, they so uh, we, sanded off some of those weird edges. <laughs> they they did. They did. So um, we haven't, you know, we haven't found the, the money buried in the backyard. Okay. We're still kind of looking shame. looking for that. What's interesting about it, too, is that, you know, his sons played golf and, and they would have Wednesday night skin games every Wednesday night in that backyard. And so um, there, it, that's before, of course, the trees were big. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's like four mounds, one on each corner of the, the yard. And then the yard is lit by four big floodlights. Only one of them's working right now. That's on the list. We're making our way down to that. But, you know, it was kind of the original Preston West, yeah. maybe, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So it, it has a lot of character. We love, we have a huge family. Right. We've had a couple of family reunions there. We plan on doing more of that. And um, hopefully we'll have some kind of nonprofit fundraiser or something there, some kind of casino night, poker night, something within the next couple of years. Okay. I want to close this section just by asking you, you know, you've you've had a, a diverse career, but you still remain here in Amarillo. Is that an intentional decision to stay here as opposed to, you know, starting over someplace else or, or moving your family somewhere someplace else? Why why do you stay in this area? Um, I think Amarillo is a great place to raise a family. Okay. You know, as as much as I wanted to leave when I was younger, I think it's easy to travel here from here, right? It's my mom's here, you know, uh, our families are here. I don't, I don't really see now once we retire, we may live on the beach and sell <laughs> t-shirts or bartend or do whatever we want to do to, to have some kind of uh, life by the water. But for right now, um, no, I don't really think about moving. And I built my I built my business here. Yeah. And my husband has too. Like if I could just relocate and get another job and plug in somewhere with the company, but I think I mean, I love my customers and I've worked hard to attract and build my reputation here. And I I don't think about starting that over just ooh, it makes my stomach hurt. <laughs> <laughs> This week's podcast is supported by the Communication Department at West Texas A&M University. WT offers nationally recognized degree programs in digital media, digital journalism, communication studies, advertising, public relations, and the fully online strategic communication emphasis. So many media professional friends of mine, people like Wilson Lemieux, Jackie Kingston, Andy Justice, Wendy Swope, they are products of this program. So is my daughter. The campus radio station KWTS 91.1 The One is at the heart of this department, and it will be celebrating its 50th anniversary this year at WT's homecoming on October 1st. You'll hear KWTS alumni on the radio from 2 to 6 p.m. that day, plus a live remote set up in the tailgating area near the stadium. 
To learn more, check out wtamu.edu slash the one. That's T-H-E-O-N-E. Hey Amarillo is also supported this week by Lazy Boy Home Furnishings. You know Lazy Boy as a national brand, but its Amarillo store is independently owned and operated by the Hawkins family, and they live right here in town. Almost everything they sell is American-made, and they offer a lot more than just recliners. Amarillo's locally-owned Lazy Boy Home Furnishings has a ton of products in stock right now. It's ready to take home or deliver today. So go visit the showroom at 3636 Sansi. Okay, I'm back with Leslie Massey. Leslie, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. I know you're familiar with it. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum in Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and its latest exhibit is Traditions of Heritage and Home, which features mission-style furniture and religious art and artifacts from the museum's collection. You can learn more about that at panhandleplains.org or go see it. Okay, first question. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? I would hope that Amarillo is the place that our kids would want to return to okay. and live. Right. I would hope that there are higher paying jobs here. Mm-hmm. And I would hope that the the segment of our population that struggles to make ends meet, that they will have advanced Okay, beyond that. Maybe more opportunity. Yes. All right. Exactly. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? <laughs> um, I kind of alluded to it. So uh, I don't know how many people are aware right, of, of the statistics of Amarillo and our population, but we really do have a large population that are in poverty or close to poverty. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think we need to to really work on that. That's a solution that is really complex and long term. Like it's right. not an easy fix and it requires decisions now that you might not see the impact of for 15 or 20 years. And that's right. why it's it's so hard to kind of get your mind around how to fix that. Right, right. Okay, what does this area not have enough of? Water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you say that as somebody who's who had a backyard that had not been watered in yeah. years and years and years. And clearly there's not enough rainfall to do that naturally, so. Exactly, exactly. And we have family, you know, that are in agriculture mm-hmm. and we just, especially now, I mean, thankfully, we've got some rain here in the last week or so, but... But you can't get it all in one weekend. No. That doesn't work either. That just causes flooding, and it's... Right. You need something for the other months. Yes. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Um, it's a big, small town. Okay. Right. Uh, the people here are friendly. Um, it's easy to travel from here to other places. There's a, a church and a restaurant and on every corner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and it's a good place to raise a family. Okay. Yeah. What's your favorite Amarillo neighborhood? So this one, I'm, I'm kind of torn. So before we moved, now we live in Paramount, right? And and I am falling in love with that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of character. It's the got houses some, some are, quirk to it. It does, right? Um, before that, we lived in Westover Park, and that was where we bought our first house. And that's I love that neighborhood because I walked and walked okay. and walked when I was pregnant and my son was little. I mean, up and down every street in that neighborhood. So that neighborhood still has a special place okay. for me. What's your favorite local restaurant? You mentioned there was one on every corner. 
which oh which corner goodness. are you drawn to most often? So we okay. So most often the answer, and I ate there Friday, and I ate there today, is Thai Air One. Okay. Okay. Um, I have. I'm blessed that that a handful of the local restaurants are also my customers, All my right. friends, right? So Thai Air One, I probably frequent. They have the best green chicken curry in town. Okay. It's amazing. And and Lon and Chili are friends of mine, and. Um, they make you feel good. I love being a regular, right? So anywhere I can go and, and become a regular is great. But we also love Scott's, right? Yeah. It's not too far from the house. We frequent there a lot. Hummers, Pescara's. We love, you know, Tanya Girasol, Jessica. You know, there's there's a ton of there good are. restaurants there are. You here. You named some, some good places. So, yes. okay, what's your favorite local coffee shop? Um, so I, I typically will just drink coffee at home, but if I have to go somewhere, I love to support Patrick Burns. Okay. I think he's an amazing human and, and him and I were at the paper for a brief moment. Yeah, that's true. Um, together years and years and years ago. So I'm proud of the business that him and his wife have, have built. It's really neat to see that. It's really interesting to see. I'm always surprised when I meet somebody and I find out they worked at the newspaper, you know, in that period from... <laughs> 1998 to 2008 or so, like there's a lot of people doing things in Amarillo yes. who came out of that corral. Yes. Um, maybe got ejected out of that corral <laughs> against their will, but um, it's it's remarkable the number of people who uh, were a part of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. When was the last time you visited Cadillac Ranch? Oh man, I was trying to figure this out last night. It had to have been back when I was in school. It's okay. been years and years and years. I had to have been a teenager probably or younger for Cadillac Ranch. You haven't taken your kids out there. So my 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 stepdaughter took my son last mm -hmm. summer or the summer before. She had a friend come up from from college, and they spent a whole you know afternoon out there painting and doing all the things. So someone else has has somebody taken. else did it. You didn't have to go do it. <laughs> I, I, I didn't have to do it. Okay, that's that's probably a good way to experience it. <laughs> okay, that concludes the eight straight questions, Leslie. I like to close by asking my guest to endorse something. So, what's one thing you would like listeners to know about or to experience? So this was kind of a hard question too, but I think my favorite program in town and the one that's had the most impact on me has been Leadership Amarillo and Canyon. Okay. So I went through in 2016. I was aware of the program. I, I really signed up because I thought it was a networking thing. Right. I thought this is going to be so good for my business. I can I'm find gonna, some clients. Yeah, I'm going to find some clients, these, you know, and it really was life-changing. Right. So through Leadership Amarillo and Canyon, you really become a better citizen. Right. You can learn um, about the poverty statistics in our community. You learn from people like Russell Lowry Hart and Lisa Blake is is amazing. And it Former really podcast guest. In fact, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you should have her again. She's amazing. <laughs> Probably should. <laughs> um, but through that program, I've made lifelong friends. Right. Our class. And I, and I think everybody probably feels this way, but our class was really special. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Shauna Thornhill was in my class. Wow, okay. Jordan Herrera with the, that runs the ARC mm -hmm. at Emerald College was in my class and, and countless others. Right. That we we have remained close and we're friends and we want to make a difference in our community. Right. So going through that really lit a fire. Um, I've always kind of wanted to be a helper and, and people would come knocking and I would write checks for things. But after going through that program, it's like, where, where can I fit in? Where, where can I really make a difference? Right. And so it wasn't long after that, that I was asked to be on the board of United Way. 
And so that, you know, leadership Amarillo has, has led me down a path that I don't know that I would be down had I not gone through the program. Okay. I think that's a, that's a good advocacy for the program then. Yeah. All right. Leslie Massey, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Leslie for the interview. Thanks to Angelina Marie for editing this episode and also to sponsors SKP Creative, Lazy Boy Home Furnishings, KWTS The One, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting the show. This podcast exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Heyamarillo's executive producers include Jason Burr, Katie Linger, Corey Burns, Jess Heredia, Wilson Lemieux, Josh Wood, Wes Reeves, Patrick Burns, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 265. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.